Good morning, church. It's good to be here. Our opening text this morning, we're going to look at two of them, and they come from Matthew, chapter, uh, Matthew 5 and also Matthew 22. And while you're looking those up, I just want to thank you for giving me the opportunity, Matt, elders, and church body, to come and share the word with you. I hope you've been praying for me because I, I want to get it right. <laughs> we want to get it right. So that's what we're going to do. God is good, right? All the time. God is good. He's good enough to give me glasses. So I'm going to use them. Will you please stand and join me as we read the word of God? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, please turn over to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Jesus is going to engage in a dialogue with a teacher. And we will remember this passage quite well. Matthew 22, starting verse 35. Excuse me, he was a lawyer. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? He, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your, your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Will you please join me in prayer? Lord God, the only way we're going to fully understand what you want us to know from your word is if you illumine to us in our hearts. Your word is alive and active. You are alive and active. We are alive and active. But it doesn't matter what I say up here, how I say it, what we hear, unless you make it understood in our volition and our wills, we're simply not going to get it. So we ask that to happen. Remove spiritual wax from our ears, spiritual scales from our eyes. Remove a, if our heart is somewhat hard, soften it. We ask that you would oversee and direct my words, my thoughts, my motives, that your message, your message, your message would come out loud and clear, first and foremost, always to your glory, and secondly, for the edification for everybody in this room. It is for all these things we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. I'm going to start out by asking you a very fundamental and pressing question for any disciple of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Why has God left us here? Some of us might have liked a thief on the cross moment, less the cross in which we were born again, and then we stepped into God's presence. But those are very, 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 very rare occurrences. He leaves us here for reason. I would submit to you that our primary reason that we're here, the ultimate reason we're here is to glorify God. We see Bible-wide that there are many, many references, exhortations 
that we were created for the glory of God. In our opening passage, Jesus spoke those great words, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And then it moves to, and glorify your fathers in heaven. It's not about us. Rick Warren had it right in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, if you've read it. First page, first sentence, it's not about us. We are here to glorify God. Our second reference we looked at is a major way we do that. And that is, of course, we love God with all the heart, mind, and soul, but we're not beings that are separated in some kind of sleeping pod from everybody else and they from us. We possess corporeal bodies. We get out, we walk about, we rub shoulders with other human beings. And so the second thing that Jesus said, he said the second commandment is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, upon these two commandments rest the whole of the law. You and I are still here to point to God and love our neighbors as ourselves. We are the walking, talking, acting, show and tell of God to attract others to his redemptive purposes in their lives. I've entitled my message today, The Disciples Paradigm in and through Christ Jesus for responding and interacting with calamity and with other people. I would say that, and I think we may thank God that he moves us in such a way, the time in which we live, the last year and eight months, I'd say within the last eight years, and my beloved wife and I were discussing this briefly, what has been the prime mover, the emotional and volitional mover in our culture? There have been several. Anxiety, anger, fear, and an ever-present and stiff dose of narcissism. These are not the variables the disciples are to live by. We are to stand apart from that. That's how we're going to shine to other people. I want to give you something I call a disciple's warning order. You can see my days in the Navy coming, reflecting back on this a little bit. Here it is. We exist solely for the glory of God. Isaiah, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Everyone who's called by my name and who I formed for my glory, whom I formed, even who I've made. That's Isaiah, Isaiah 43. So back to our warning order. We exist solely for the glory of God. We are left on planet Earth to draw the attention of others to God's gospel in Christ Jesus. We do this only through and by lordship to, under, and in Jesus Christ. Accordingly, we know that we are to stand out and apart from the ethos and values of those in the world who are spiritually not yet alive. And we do this 
in Christ Jesus. It's interesting as I was preparing this message, I read the following from Isaiah. Listen to these words. This is Isaiah 8, 11 to 13. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Profound, <laughs> especially in light of what I was preparing to speak on. We must not, to the best of our ability and striving, act in or utilize the ways and methods of those still not in relationship with God. We disciples of Jesus Christ act and think in accord with God's mind and God's will and God's feelings. We, our response to calamity and other people, must be demelded with, atoned to the heart and mind of God. I want to read a great quote to you from a man named Oswald Chambers. Anybody heard of him? Oswald Chambers? Yeah? Okay. It, a shout out and thanks to God. You know, and I, I'm sure Matt can relate to this and any of you guys who preached up here, when you are preparing for a message and you're saying, God help, <laughs> you know, I need some information here. I need some, 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 some nuggets. Not, first and foremost from his word, the Bible, and then other sources. And this is one. He provided this. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers. We are apt to forget that a man is not only committed to Jesus Christ for salvation. He is committed to Jesus Christ's view of God, of the world, of sin, and of the devil. And this will mean that he must recognize the responsibility of being transformed by the renewing of his mind. In another place, he said this. Chambers said, it is in the middle that human choices are made. The beginning and the end remain with God. The decrees of God are birth and death. And in between those limits, man makes his own distress or joy. And I'd submit to you, for us disciples, it will be his joy in distressing times. Sanctification means an intense concentration on God's point of view. I say it again, we must remember why we're here. We remember God's template for our interactive conduct and especially remembering God's loving view of people. Let me say that again, God's loving view of people. That's an area I really need to work on. That's why I stress it. <laughs> Jesus is not in the condemnation business, folks. He's in the redemption business. So, I want to give you a threefold, if you think of it this way, a three-legged stool of the disciples' paradigm in and through Christ Jesus, responding to calamity and other people, which are obviously going to be in that calamity. They are these. Trust. That's the first one. Trust. I get to show my Baptist leanings because I got two more. Truth, truth is the second one. And 
third. And when we get there, you'll figure out what that means. So it's trust, truth, and third. You and I know that the probably the greatest theme through the New Testament, at least, well, I'd say through the whole Bible, Abraham was justified by faith. Our English word for trust, we draw from the Greek word pistoio, okay? And that's used numerous times as a verb or an adverb in the New Testament. What it means is it means a complete reliance upon God Almighty for the totality of my being, for everything involved. You and I both know that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible to be in relationship with him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.6, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, remember, remember the big picture here. We're talking about a paradigm for how I'm going to respond to both calamity and other people. If my trust is anywhere else other than God, it's going to cave in. The, the, the programs, as, as you be hornswoggled, as the great Foghorn Leghorn said, we got to get this right. Trust happens first. The trust that God gives you and I established, and, and there's something else. We receive this trust, Ephesians 2.8, from God. Then as we move down the road of life, we learn a greater, greater strengthening, latching on to Christ Jesus, Matthew 9, 9, 9. The word, when he, it says there that Jesus was passing by the tax office. He saw Matthew, the tax collector. He said to Matthew, come follow me. Okay. And Matthew followed him. The word is, um, we translate it into follow. The Greek word, akolutheo, it's an intensive verb. It really means to latch on to somebody like this. He was saying to Jesus, you latch on to me for everything pertaining to life and godliness. You follow my lead. And that's where we are. We follow his lead in this thing called trust. In these circumstances, what other circumstances may be, in the first century, Christians were going to trash heaps outside major cities and they were taking out black babies. What's a black baby? A black baby was a black baby because they were thrown into the soot. They were alive when they were thrown in. It was a very common practice amongst Romans, Greeks, and even possibly others, Gentiles, that if they didn't like the baby for whatever reason, they'd throw it away. And anybody who went out there and said, I'm gonna, we're going to rescue that kid, they were scoffed at, laughed at, and sometimes they were violently beaten. The only way that these Christians could do this with deepest conviction and continue moving forward in the, face, in the face of such adversity was trust. They knew Jesus Christ. They knew that he had them. There are two areas that you and I trust in the micro. That's our individual lives. That's in our small area of, of uh, influence and the associations we have. And in those areas, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Psalm 37. I want you to see this for yourself. This is a great, great, what I'm going to read to you is one of my life verses. It's a couple of them. Psalm 37. And remember, we're looking at trusting Jesus in the micro. You know that a disciple 
if he's completely by himself for a month or herself, as the case may be, they still have plenty of reason to trust Jesus Christ and God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. Now, Psalm 37, 23 and 24, look at this. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. My steps, wherever I go, are established by God. I work in a prison. I've been up there for 21 years. Before that, I was in a place called the Oregon State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. And I've, all my adult life, I've been working with some, how does one put it, interesting people. <laughs> and my steps are established. God put me there. I've gone through physical challenges. So have you. God's got me. So back to our passage, Psalm 37, 23, 24. The steps of man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, that's, God's, that's not God, that's me, that's the disciple. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Isn't that a great promise? We don't get cast away. One of my favorite memory verses, Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I'll uphold you. Layman's terms, I got you, man. I've got you. So we're with God in the micro, we're with God. A second aspect of this, that his effectualness, his effectualness is going to be with us and bring us through. You want to hear a great promise concerning you disciples, concerning the redeemed? Just listen to these words. It comes from Isaiah 43, 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other people in your place and other nations in exchange for your life. Think about that for a moment. Other peoples in exchange for your life. I don't know who they are. That's God's call but I'm sure glad he did it. I'll take it. How many of you know Romans 8, 1? Yeah. Great promise, isn't it? There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. So in my, in my micro, I trust in this world. I, when I ride my bicycle, and I'm going to get a helmet when I ride my bicycle downtown. <laughs> Angie's riding me all the time about that. When I do road work on my fast bike, I wear a helmet, but downtown I don't because I'm wet like this and I'm looking around all over the place. But I should have a helmet. And God knows that. And he's been <laughs> he watches out for me. And yeah, I'm going to get a helmet in the very near future. <laughs> yes. Okay. Third aspect of trust in the micro. I am with God. It is his effectualness. That, that gives me a basis for trust that's actually realized in real life. And it's through him. He brings me in this relationship with him. In John 10, 28 to 30, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. You remember the word picture there? And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one shall snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Did you know that, that God planned on you being his prior to the formation of the universes and the planet that we live on? Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. See, salvation is not a plan B. It's plan A. And we're in it. 
keeping the main thing the main thing, what's going to enable the disciple to rightly engage calamity and other people, this trust. I debated whether it's going to be the trust first or the truth first. Trust first or the truth. I said, no trust. It has to start with trust. God gets a hold of us through pistoil, faith. And then as we move forward in life, we greater understanding of his truth and appropriation of it. By the way, if you don't know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I'll tell you a couple things. Number one, I would tell you after the service, see somebody here and say, I want to know Jesus. Um, because those of us who know him, we've been walking with him for a while, and we, in a kind of a clumsy way, can tell you how to, how to know him. If that scares you, and you say, well, not now, then go home and say, okay, JC, if you're really there, time to let me know about it. And he will. But don't wait. You're missing out on a lot. You're missing out on the most important truths and relationship you're ever going to have. So trust in the micro. Now trust in the macro. The macro means the world in which I deal with. Uh, most of the people I deal with work in a, a penitentiary. I deal with you folks sometimes. I deal with people down at the Y. Boy, I'm talking about some interesting people. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, but you get the idea. We, we deal with people all over the place. Several areas here. From the condemnation of human evil. I can trust because I know ultimately, and we'll, I'm going to tell, share in a few moments what real condemnation looks like, but from the condemnation of human evil, well, there's a lot of human evil in the world, isn't there? Goodness gracious, we see it all over the place. And I'm going to, I want to read to you, you don't have to look there, just listen to these words, Psalm 27 and verse 3, though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear, though war Arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. Well, why? Why, is it, why does the psalmist write this? Why would I be confident? Why would you be confident? Because we know God. Because the situation we're in has not taken him by surprise. It may take us by surprise. Because we can look at that situation and say, okay, what am I going to learn through this, Lord? What are you going to teach me? We have that perspective going back to where we started from. When we're saved, we're not just saved to know that we're saved. We're saved to understand life from God's perspective which you can't get any better than that. And I dare say that many of us here in this room, us disciples, we have a spiritual road that we've been walking down. We can go back and do a, a, a spiritual memory lane. I suggest you do that often because it will increase your trust in God. You'll see, yeah, he was here. He was here. He's here. Holy smokes. He was here. I remember that when I talk I had with him uh, back in 2006, when I found out I had a brain tumor and I sat in my recliner. Okay. Now what God, you know, the list goes on, and you can do that too. Please do. It's a good thing to do. So from the condemnation of evil men, another one. From the condemnation of famine, economic meltdown, pestilence, war, etc. The thing you have no idea about at all. The prophet Habakkuk. I think some of you know what I'm going to read. It's a great read. Habakkuk 3.17 now, mind you, this guy was not a spiritual masochist. <laughs> Most of us aren't. We don't like it. Oh, man, when things get tough, they get tough. We know this living in a sin-stained world. He knew it, too. And here's what he said. 
though the fig, fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail and the folds produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. This is his way of saying the bucket has dropped out. We have had a major crash and burn here. But he goes on to say, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He gives you the reason why he's exulting. The non-believers might look at Christians and say, you guys are a weird lot. And in many ways, we, we are. That's okay. Let them say that. Because they don't know the Lord. So to them, it's as Paul said, the gospel is foolishness to those, to those people who don't know. To those who are perishing, the gospel is foolishness. But not to us who are the recipients of it. And he can say, God's got this. And he's got me in the midst of it. He goes on to say in verse 19, the Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk in high places. Yes, indeed he does. So our trust in the world, the macro, we don't fear evil of men. We don't fear evil of pestilence. We don't even fear the unseen, the spiritual realm. Because God is particularly very active in control of that. Please turn your Bibles to Colossians. We need this reminder on a regular basis. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Paul, moved by the Spirit of God, is going to make a statement concerning the essence and the work of Christ Jesus. And it's very, very germane to what we're looking at now, particularly when it comes to trust. There are many, many ways that the non-believing world and many, many areas and things that the non-believing world puts their trust in. Those of us who know the Lord, we put our trust in Christ Jesus. I'm going to read to you why. Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 13. For he, that's Christ, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Praise God. It gets better. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. Let me read that again. By him. Who's the him? Say it nice and loud. Jesus is. How many of you guys know about laminin? Laminin? I see some hands. Oh, my. I'm going to have to give you guys a treat. Okay. It's spelled A-L-A-M-I-N-I-N. -I -I Go home after you finish here and look it up on Google. And this statement, for, all, for by him all things were created, will make more sense to you in light of laminin. 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. That's huge. Everything that we encounter, every political system, every ideology, Every social construct, it's not in existence if it wasn't for Jesus. I like to study truth. I've done some introductory philosophical studying in, in the school of philosophy. There's three primary um, theories of truth. There's the correspondence theory and the coherence theory and the utilitarian theory. Those guys have nothing on Jesus. He's the reason they came up with those theories, two of which, by the way, are wrong. You want the correspondence theory, and we may thank Jesus for that. 
Verse 17, and in him, and he's, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Why do I have a trust? Because I know that everything from the electricity coming out of those light bulbs to the magnification of my voice to the, the blood that's pumping through my veins to anything that happens external to me, all of it came into being because God either made it in the, in, in, for, for every good thing he made. And when evil happens, he lets it happen to us for his glory. Can you say win-win? <laughs> Praise God. That's why I trust. And that serves as a bedrock for the other two dynamics we're going to be looking at. The last one I want to cover on this, it's a, a needed reminder. I'm, doing, I'm simply going to read this. What I'm going to read to you now could be the subject for at least five sermons. So don't worry, we're not going there. But there's a, there's a needed reminder. A needed reminder on being touched by evil. Condemnation from God's perspective and mine is the absence of positive delivery, edifying life building, or deeper insight into my relationship with God regarding his character and nature. Condemnation from God's perspective. Another way to put it, for those of us who are in God, there's no condemnation. The worst condemnation is something that happens to someone in which there's no positive delivery or outcome. Obviously, the worst is stepping into a crisis eternity. That's as bad as it gets. A few degrees down from that is living life without Jesus. My point is, us Christians don't face that kind of condemnation. Now, I can hear the, the cynic. Oh, wait a minute, man. What about the old Christian lady got killed in a car wreck? Or what about this guy whose wife just died of cancer? Or, and the list can go on and on and on. And it's okay. That's understandable. We would say we are in the hand of God. If the worst that happens is I lose my physical life because of a car wreck or disease, the eternal part of me goes to be with God. Now, granted, okay, the man who lost his wife to cancer, he's still here. He misses her. Someone who lost their grandma to a drunk driver, you name it. Okay, they still miss him. And they see that as a negative. And it is. We don't scoff at that. We don't belittle people for going through that kind of stuff. But they see us going through that and they say, what holds you together? Well, Jesus does. And if we are walking with him rightly, they're going to say, I want to know more. Can you tell me about this Jesus cat? Yeah, gladly. So that's what I'm talking about. When We're not facing that kind of hopeless condemnation. Does that make sense? That's an important point. The last thing why we trust, and then we're going to move on to truth. I may trust God for complete peace and hope. For hope. The disciple hope is not a hazy, empty, vapor-filled with platitudes with that, that, that move my mood for a moment. Um, who was it? Saturday Night Live, Gilda Radner. She always just say, well, there's always something, you know. And that was her way of, well, I, I'll buck myself up and try to get through this. Our hope is real. You know why? Because Jesus is real. And we have a relationship with him. The most real metaphysical or spiritual dynamics happen because of relationship. They don't happen because you say, well, it'll get better, it get better. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, back where you know, just keep it get better, get better. No, it doesn't work that way. History teaches us. We know this. 
his objective truth and real hope, which will be seen in events and circumstances that positively affect my will and thoughts. Jeremiah 29, 11. Behold, I know the, thought, the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not calamity to give you a future and a hope. That's a promise by God. Then there's peace. Boy, I grew up in the 60s. Peace signs all over the place. In the middle of a riot and a giant fight. There's peace for you. Peace in an unwinnable war. Peace, 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 peace. Well, you know what Jesus said. He says, I, I don't give you peace the way the world gives you. I give you my peace. No matter the circumstances. And we will, he um, will give us that peace that is real. In Colossians 3.15, he states this. I'll give you a few more seconds because I want you to see this. Now, you guys weren't there when I prepared this, so yeah, <laughs> give you a break. Colossians 3.15. And let the peace, Irene, Irene, where the name Irene comes from, okay, which is this, this peace is imputed to us in our relationship with Christ Jesus because he gives us un his understanding on world events, on, on our world, on situations, you name it. Colossians 3.15, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Okay, enough on trust. That was trust. By the way, if you want one of these outlines, and, and I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope what this will induce you is do more study on the subject. I, I, don't, I don't think you can study enough on this, or almost any subject from the Word of God, but on this particular one, particularly at these times, if you want one of these, call me at the pin. Okay? Just call the switchboard, 525-3610. Let me speak to Chaplain Alden. You can, if you hear a recording, uh, if you know the four-digit extension, then you can punch in 6166. You know, they tried to give me 666. It's my, I said, oh, no, no, no. You're not going there. Break it up. <laughs> you know, what is this, a sick joke? Yeah. Yeah, 6166. And I'll gladly email you one of these, Okay? The next leg we're talking about, remember, we're looking at how do I interact in and through Christ with calamity and other people. The second leg of that stool, truth, truth. Somebody's once said the first casualty in a war is truth. And I'd say, yep, that's particularly true also in spiritual warfare. We Christians like to say we're on the side of truth. Let me quote to you a very great Christian who said this, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Abraham Lincoln. I agree with that. Um, a, a moment of transparency. I've developed the following conviction. I'm not a Christian nationalist. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and nationalism is under his truth. I'm not a constitutionalist. I'm a disciple of Christ Jesus and a constitution under his truth. I'm not an American culturalist. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ and a culturist under his truth. Living in this culture, any culture, will be and always will be engaged in a struggle for truth. 
The competing entities are the truth affirmations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the sure, peerless truth of Christ Jesus. A real simple guide to ask yourself is this. Is this particular truth affirmation or course of action one of three choices? Is it pro-biblical, ah-biblical, or anti-biblical? Pro-biblical, ah-biblical, or anti-biblical? Pro-biblical, obviously God would affirm it. Ah-biblical. Well, he doesn't condemn it, nor does he affirm it. A real simple exam uh, example. Native Americans, okay, when they, uh, they, they suffer the loss of a loved one, they will mourn easily for a week to 10 days. Now, us Washushis, white people, we'd say, well, we're not going to do that. I mean, we, we take them to the graveyard, throw dirt in their face, go back to the fellowship hall, macaroni salad, all done in one day. Well, natives don't. And they see that as rather abhorrent. That's, that's, that's all biblical. And then, of course, anti-biblical, well, I don't have to tell you about those kinds of examples. God would say, don't do this. We don't do it. <clears throat> Disciples' truth formula. Number one, Christ Jesus is the affirmed and confirmed most relevant truth. Amen. <laughs> he is the truth. He declared that. You remember in John's Gospel, John 6, Jesus turned on some disciples because he, he said, you guys are around for an easy time. That's not what I'm about. That made them mad, so they left. So then he looked at the original 12, and he said, are you going to leave me too? Remember what Peter said? He said, who are we going to go to? You have the words of life. We've come to know that you are God's chosen one. He's got the words of life. And I'll, don't, well, now I'm preaching to the choir. He said, I am the way, the truth, definite article. He didn't say a truth, the truth. That's what he is. If he's that, he's also the originator and perfecter of my faith to grow in trust and truth as I interact with calamity and other people. I love that passage in Hebrews 12. Um, 12.1, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses around us, you guys are some of those witnesses. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. If verse 2 was not next, we'd have a problem, because we say, how are we going to do this? How, you know, hello? Well, okay, here's how you do it. Fixing our eyes on Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You want more faith? Go to Jesus. <laughs> Remember the guy in Mark? If you only had more faith, you'd, you'd just, give me more faith. Increase my faith, Lord. So, Christ is a starting place for truth. The second thing, for the disciple who embraces Christ Jesus and his truth, I will know his truth, and I will be able to discern any truth claim, whether it's true or whether it's in line with the will of God for my life. John 8, 31, 32, please turn there. I don't want to misquote it to you. I just recently memorized it, so I don't want to get it wrong. John 8, 31 and 32, and when you have it, please say Amen. Couple more amens. Yeah. It is. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, know the singular, notice the singular, my word, my worldview, my view of reality. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And listen to this, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Anxiety, anger, fear, narcissism. 
meanness. You name it. So we know Jesus the truth because we know him. We embrace his. Then we're going to know the truth and it'll set us free. Then our, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> they have the smartphones, right? They have the iPads. They got the computers. They're checking that text message all the time. We need to be checking this text message a lot more, more often on this bad boy. You know why I believe the Bible is the word of God? Here it is. The Bible is the word of God because it was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who report supernatural events that are the direct result of divine agency or prophecy. And finally, they assert that the writings are divine rather than human in origin. So the big picture, my interaction with calamity, with other people, all right? There's trust, there's truth, three parts of the truth. Christ is the truth. We embrace his truth. We're going to know what, what truth really is. And we'll also recognize falsehood. And we spend a lot of time in our owner's manual. Okay, spiritual first aid manual, spiritual playbook. There it is. Reminder, there's the truth of the world versus the truth of God. Who is the prince in power of the air? Say it nice and loud. Satan is. His modus operandi is the lie. So all the information that's danced around the ether world that comes up on smartphones, on iPads, on you name it, through news agencies, through appointed self-profit, street corner soliloquists, you name it. If they don't know the Lord, who's the one putting the stuff out there? Yeah, that's right. I, um, you're going to find a lot more. Peace, joy, happiness, love, contentment, motivation for moving on under Christ. And when you tap into his truth and worldview, because if I tap into the world's, watch out. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we completely shut off all those things. We need, there's, there's some basic news we need to know about. But it is easy for a person to, wow, really? Wow, really? Wow, really? And keep, you know... And you go 19 different levels down to the ether world to find out about this one particular quote-unquote fact. I want to give you a good friend of mine, Pastor Tim. He uh, pastors First Baptist over in Richland. And two weeks ago, I was talking about, about this. And again, one of those, thank you, Lord, big time, good. You know what he does? He's got his Psalms um, therapy, for lack of a better term. If he spends 10 minutes looking at CNN or facts, it's 10 minutes in the Psalms. If he spends 15 minutes, you know, on a smartphone looking at this particular, okay, 15 minutes in the Psalms. He's very, very consistent about that. I thought, thanks, Tim. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that after I watch the Seahawks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Number three, the third leg, the third leg, third in any interaction I have with another human being, and the same with you, there are three parties present, present, excuse me, three people and three entities involved. The, he, and me. And I'm third. What I want comes in third place. 
You know the example that Paul, moved by the Spirit of God, penned for you and I in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it to you. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And you know what he did, and you know why he did it. And we are told, have this attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Well, we're not divine. He's not saying that. But the reason that Christ did this is because he thought more highly of human beings than himself. You and I must think the most highly of God Almighty. He's first. He's number one. Then we think of other people. We give them consideration. Turn to Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 7. Let's go back to Matthew 7 for a minute. We're almost done here. Matthew 7. And you know how to get this, this uh, outline. When you call the penitentiary, don't ask them, you know, hey, put me in charge with the guy who's got 666. It's 6166. Okay. Matthew 7, 11 and 12. Matthew 7, 11 and 12. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? That's us. Yay. Thank you, God. Verse 12. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. Do I want what's well for me? Well, that's what that person wants, too. I've just been told it. Okay, you treat them the way you want to be treated. You remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, you know, somebody comes up and a Roman soldier comes up, and you're going to carry my tunic, Mr. Jew, for five miles. I'll, I'll do it for seven for you. Huh? What's up with this? Paul spoke very, very, very eloquently on this. Please turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Next time that you encounter an individual that is, uh, their perspective is substantially 180 from you, for lack of a better term. Maybe they know the Lord, maybe they don't. But this could be something that could bring you to loggerheads. Consider this. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. 1 Corinthians 9, 19. Paul was moved by the Spirit of God to write these words. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, under the law of Christ, that's important, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I mentioned to you Native Americans, ministry to Native Americans. I know a white guy that does that. And he looks, from a distance, you'd say, oh, what tribe does he belong to? Cheyenne? Because he looks just like a Native American. He's growing his hair long. Hudson Taylor did the same thing when he ministered to Chinese. Some people say, man, you know, we come looking like those guys. Pro-biblical, ah-biblical, anti-biblical. It's pro-biblical to do something by which these people are more open to relate to me. It's all biblical to grow my hair in a ponytail. Just make sure it doesn't get caught when I'm playing racquetball. Um, you get the idea. 
And this holds true. Remember, we're looking at this three-legged stool. How do I interact with calamity? And in calamity, guess what? There's going to be people there. Conclusion. Why are we here? One, to model interacting in situations with other God's way. We use God's way and Jesus' way to interact in any given situation. To model the exact opposite emotions and visceral responses that the world does. And it's got a lot of them, aren't they? They're, they're very interesting. To stand as a beacon of peace, hope, joy, loving kindness, truth seeking, and applying that truth to our lives. We point to God. Our lives are neon light saying, it's God, it's God, it's God, it's all about God. We can only do that by doing it first, then articulating it. If we try to do it the other way around, there's a word for that. It starts with an H. It's called hypocrisy. We don't want to go there. In the early 50s, Billy Graham was meeting with a man named Conrad Adenauer, West German prime minister. He was the first one for West Germany. They were in his office. Billy Graham had just shared with Mr. Adenauer that Jesus Christ is the most important reason for existence. Adenauer said to Billy Graham, do you believe in the resurrection? And Graham was a little flabbergasted. Did we, did we miss something in translation? What do you think I've been telling you? And he said, yes. So Adenauer turned, he went over and he looked out a window and he was looking literally at the rubble of Berlin. There had been some interesting interactions out there, hadn't there? Some substantial calamity. He looked at that, Mr. Graham, the only hope for mankind is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the end of all and the center towards which all tends. Whoever knows Jesus Christ knows the reason for everything, particularly dealing with calamity and other people. That's our word of prayer. God, we stand awestruck and deeply thankful that you dealt with us in calamity, personally, one-on-one. -on -one. We are most thankful that you reached out to us with grace, kindness, patience, understanding, truth, and redeemed us. In these times, we're reminded we have the same mandate to bring others to you in these times. That you may show them your grace, your kindness, your hope, your patience, your redemption, your truth. May we and never, ever, ever forget that you have put us here to glorify you. We are to let our light shine, a shining light that is a beacon to you. And in the process, John 15 tells us, we will grow stronger and have your joy in us. We thank you for this opportunity. For all this we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our God's men said, amen. May you go in peace. Thank you for your time.